0: Take your Bibles, turn them with me to the book of James. We're in James chapter five. If you're using these black Bibles that we provided for you, they're they're scattered underneath the seats throughout the sanctuary. If you need one of those, you can use that. You can even um, uh, have it if you don't own a Bible. And if you're using that one, it's on page 952. Make it real easy for you. 952, James chapter five. So, if you were to make a list of the most important spiritual disciplines that you need in your life to help you to grow in Christ. What would you put on that list? What are some things that you would put down? I think many of our lists would overlap and, and probably have some, some similar things on there, like Bible reading and prayer and, and coming together with other believers in corporate worship and scripture memory and service and evangelism. Those are all important elements of the Christian life and are a means that God uses to grow us spiritually. But I'm doubtful that anyone would put on the list of necessary elements for Christian growth the discipline of waiting, of patience. Is that on anybody's list? That's probably not something that we tend to think of as something that is good. We tend to be an impatient people. We, we don't think of waiting as a good thing. We tend to think of waiting in negative terms. Uh, There was a study that was done recently to see how long people were willing to wait for a video to load on their cell phone or on their computer. They studied 6.7 million people. After two seconds, people started moving on. After five seconds, many more people had moved on, and after ten seconds, half of the people had moved on, and, and, I, and, I'm, and I don't know what this says about me, but I'm thinking, well, well, well there are people actually who waited 10 seconds? Uh, it feels like an eternity when you're waiting for something to load. I, I've been trained by a 21st century world. I, I've been hardwired to, to now think and process life in such a way, and, and none of us like to wait. But waiting for a video to load is one thing. Waiting goes to a whole new level when we are suffering, And when we are in pain, and when we are in a season of extreme difficulty and trial, and we are waiting for relief, and it is then where waiting is not just an annoyance, waiting seems to be an enemy because we think of ongoing waiting in the midst of hardship as something that steals our joy and our growth because we are so sure about what we ultimately need to make us happy and satisfied and, and spiritually strong. And we think, of, well, if I could just get past this trial, uh, if we could just do that, then we could really move forward and serve God and have joy and, and experience blessing. Uh, we see We tend to see blessing as getting out of the trial. We certainly cannot see how blessing Can be in the trial and and waiting for that trial to be resolved. And yet, patience, which is developed through waiting in the midst of the trial, is one of the most important spiritual disciplines that brings about powerful growth and maturity. And it is the thing, I know this is going to be hard for some of you to believe, but it is the thing that unlocks incredible blessing in our lives. And that idea is totally foreign to us. Because the difficulty that we experience doesn't seem like a blessing. It seems like a curse. And yet, as we approach the conclusion of James's letter, he returns to where he began, to this topic of trials, suffering, patience, blessing. He's talked about all these things before. In chapter 1, at the start of his letter, he said, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds.'" But then James explains that as you go through the trial, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is a persistent perseverance. It's closely related to patience. And it's through steadfastness that spiritual strength and maturity and power and effectiveness for God come. And so a few verses later in chapter 1, he then writes, Blessed is, or happy is, the man who remains steadfast, who remains patient under trial. Now that is so different than what rings forth from some pulpits and is written in some books that say that being blessed by God looks like freedom from the trial. Uh, It looks like a quick escape from the difficulty, victory over disease, fat bank accounts, things like that, Uh, your dreams and your ambitions coming true. We think of blessing as God quickly removing the things that are causing us hardship and quickly giving us the things that we think are best for our lives. We have a certain story that we have written for our lives, and we think blessing is when God falls in line with our story. But James is going to take us in another direction. And after telling us in chapter 1 about the significance of patience in the trial as we wait for God's purposes to come to full fruition in our lives, he now gives us wisdom in regards to how. How can we be patient in the trial? Where can I find the hope that I need to have in the trial that's going to help me to be patient? How do I live in, in my suffering in such a way that my waiting is not wasted? If you are a sufferer, James has some help and some encouragement for you this morning, so let's get it right now. Please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We're in James chapter 5, and we're starting in verse 7, and we'll read on down through verse 11. James writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would have mercy on me, a sinner. I come into this pulpit this morning trembling and feeling the weight of your word and the weight of the responsibility and feeling very, very weak. And I think that means you have me where you want me. And so I pray that you would help this preacher to be faithful to your word. And I pray for my weak brothers and sisters this morning. While I may have struggle preaching the word, there are those here who will have trouble hearing the word. And so I pray that your spirit will, will give us attentive ears and a mind that is fixed on you and your word and a heart that is open to what you have to say and Father, there are, there are certain outcomes to this service this morning that, that I would like to see, but I can't make happen. I have no power to do that. And so I pray that as the Word is unleashed this morning, that it would do a work that I cannot do, that it would touch hearts and bless and encourage and help and increase faith and convict where necessary. And so we submit the remainder of our time to you this morning, the good and gracious and merciful and compassionate God. We look forward to seeing what you're going to do through your word in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so James's audience has been dealing with some significant hardships. Uh, After having to leave their home city of Jerusalem in the wake of intense, violent persecution, they find themselves in new places trying to carve out a new life. Most of them were poor and destitute. They're struggling to feed their families. And and as we read about last week at the beginning of chapter 5, many of these Christians found themselves working for some, uh, some pretty bad, rich landowners who were taking advantage of these poor Christians who would serve as day laborers for them. They're working by the sweat of their brow. They're working in the heat of the day, farming the land. Sun up to sundown. And at the end of the day, these landowners actually would hold back wages from these poor Christians and not pay what was owed. And so the rich were, were getting richer and more powerful, living in just ever-increasing luxury and comfort, and the poor are becoming more and more destitute. Uh, what's more, the justice system, the courts, were rigged in favor of the rich, and so, so these Christians had no recourse. They were in a horrible situation. And so this leads to James's harsh diatribe against the rich at the beginning of chapter 5, where he rather bluntly and boldly, like an Old Testament prophet, denounces their wickedness. And promises God's judgment upon them for their evil mistreatment of his people. That's what we saw last week in verses one through six. But starting in verse seven, James, as he stops addressing the wicked rich and starts addressing his scattered flock, sounds less like a railing prophet and more like an encouraging pastor. He is their pastor, after all. And he commends to his suffering brothers and sisters the importance and necessity of patience in their trial, and he gives them five truths about patience. And the first thing that he talks about is the reason for patience. And the reason for patience is the coming of the Lord. Now, I think when we're going through difficulty, our frustration can lead us into two opposite directions, and both of them are wrong. One is apathy and despair. Well, things are just never going to get better. This is the end of the story. There's nothing good to look forward to, and and we just kind of just collapse and give up. And I think we've all been there. Or we can go the opposite way, and we can burn with anger. It's not hard to imagine that some of these Christians that James is writing to, in their indignation, they are feeling the the temptation to take matters into their own hands in the form of vengeance and retaliation. This is not right. Nobody's doing anything about it. Doesn't seem like God's doing anything about it. I'm going to do something about it. But James comes along and he speaks a word that addresses both of those extremes. He says in verse 7, "Be patient, therefore, brothers." Now, that's a hard word for us because we are naturally impatient, especially when we feel like somebody is doing us wrong. But James gives us a reason. He gives us a grounds for our patience. Again, verse 7, he says, "Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord." That word coming in the Greek is the word parousia. The word literally means presence. It was a word used in the ancient world to describe the arrival of a king. And the New Testament takes that word that had common use in the secular world and applies it to the coming of King Jesus at the end of history to judge the wicked. And James is essentially telling them, uh, even though it seems like the bad guys are winning and they're on top and they're getting away with everything, a day of reckoning is coming. They will pay for what they have done to you. I see it. I know what's going on. I will take care of it. You don't have to retaliate and take vengeance yourself. I've got this. God's going to do it. We're going to settle all accounts and make everything right so you can be patient until the Lord's coming justice will happen. But the parousia, the coming of the Lord, uh, uh, the coming of Christ in power and glory at the end of the age, isn't just a word of warning for the evildoers. It's also a word of comfort for His people. Not only will God settle accounts with the wicked, but He will also deliver and exalt and vindicate and reward His suffering saints." James already has given us a peek of this back in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The message of the Bible is constantly telling you about the reality of suffering in this present age. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat things. The Bible's very realistic about that. But that's not the whole story. The Bible also is very quick to tell us that for the people of God, suffering always gives way to glory. Suffering now, glory later. That's always the pattern. And when we live in light of eternity, we recognize that the time and the intensity of the suffering is is small and a blip on the radar screen compared to the intensity of the glory that we will experience and enjoy when Jesus Christ returns, which is why we have the Apostle Paul, one of the Bible's biggest sufferers, say things in Romans 8 like this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul views his hardships through the framework of a larger reality that has its climax in the perusi of Christ. And the more he meditates on that and the more he ponders those truths, the more that he is able to deal with his present afflictions and the more powerful a minister he is in the world. You know, sometimes people say, well, well, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Have you ever heard of that before? Um, I don't know of anyone who is that fixed on heaven, to be honest with you. Maybe there is somebody. I actually think my problem and the problem of most people is the opposite. I tend to not be heavenly-minded enough. Is that, is that your struggle? Uh, I, and so what happens is I become fixed and focused on myself and on my own trials. I'm not heavenly-minded. I'm, not heavenly I'm earthly-minded. I'm, I'm, I'm focused on these temporal things. I become self-absorbed, and I become discouraged, and it stunts my growth in Christ, and it minimizes my ministry impact on others. So it's no good for me, and I'm no good for anybody else. But Paul, who suffered greatly, he suffered spiritually, he suffered emotionally, he suffered physically. He said in Galatians, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I've got the scars to prove it, to prove my commitment to Christ. And yet, in the middle of all of that suffering... He kept his eyes forward to the coming of Christ. And that's that's why Paul was so on fire for Christ. Why he was so able to, to consistently pour out his life for Christ and for others. The reality of future glories overshadowed his present trials. And so he was able to make this amazing statement in 2 Corinthians. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's not being insensitive. He's not minimizing our suffering. What he's doing is he's putting it into perspective, which is what I need. He's taking the weight and the intensity and the duration of the affliction, and he's comparing it to the weight and the intensity and the duration of the coming glory. And when he does that, It's no contest, right? If all I'm doing is focusing on this and the things that I'm going through and the trial and the suffering, that is all I see. That is all I feel. And I need to take the lead of the Apostle Paul and, yes, acknowledge that, deal with that, live through that. Can't escape from reality, right? But at the same time, hold this at the same time and and look at this and focus on this and it's no contest. And Paul's clear vision of the future totally impacts how he lives in the present. That's why eschatology is important and immensely practical. A lot of people don't think eschatology is practical. You know what eschatology is? It's it's the study of what the Bible has to say about the last things, end times. And I know there's different views about some of the particulars and details of that. I get that. We're not going to get into all that right now. But the one eschatological category that all of us must be clear on is the parousia of Christ. We, we just can't have some vague, fuzzy notion that, yeah, okay, uh, one, th- one day I guess things are going to get better. And, th- and, then we just, and then we just move on and we don't even think about that. We need to have a framework of thought that is completely shaped by the reality of the glorious return of the king. And that return is going to bring about the final defeat of evil, the establishment of justice, the reshaping of the cosmos, the resurrection and the final vindication of God's suffering people, and a kingdom inheritance where we will rule and reign with Christ, and it's coming soon. And if you knew that all that was going to happen this Tuesday, how might it change your life today And tomorrow. How might it change your perspective in your trial? How would it change how you love others, how you serve, how you witness, how you think about those who do evil in their apparent prosperity? We would be so heavenly-minded that we, in those final days, would do much earthly good. And James urges us to live every day in light of the reality of that day, Because we really are in the final days of human history. In Psalm 37, David's thinking is framed by the same eschatological reality. He tells us in Psalm 37 not to fret over evildoers. And then he says, "'Refrain, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourselves, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more.'" Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. I love those last words. There is inheritance coming. There is delight coming. There is peace coming. Because the promise of Christ's parousia, his presence, is ultimately a promise that whatever suffering and hardship you are going through in life, it has an expiration date. It has an expiration date. That thing you're thinking about right now that you that is hard and you wish would end, it'll end. It has an expiration date. Chronic sickness will have an end. Marital problems will end. Financial hardship will end. Injustice and oppression will end. Strained relationships will end. And what those things will be replaced by is best described by David in Psalm 16, who writes, in your presence in your parousia, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The more we can have our hearts and our minds fixed on the coming of the Lord, the more that a peaceful patience will be cultivated in our lives. I don't think I do that enough. I don't think I think about these things enough. I think I think about the the coming NFL season more then I think about these things. God, help me. So, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. So, he gives us a a reason for patience, but now he moves on and he helps us out. He gives us an illustration of patience. He turns our attention to the farmer. Look at the second half of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? Now, this illustration would have been something that, that everyone in the ancient world would have understood. They were so much closer to this farming reality than most of us are today. Uh, most of us are, are removed from this. If you ask kids today, where does your food come from? Most of them will say Kroger. Uh, we, we've got grocery stores with pots, and some, some of you are like, it doesn't come from Kroger? <laughs> We got piles and piles of food and, 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 uh, in, in these stores, and, and you can hop in your car, and you can roll through a drive-thru, and five minutes later, you can drive away with bags of food for your whole family and food to spare. And we, we got processed food, and we got fast food, and we got frozen food. You can just pop it in the microwave, and three minutes later, it is there, it is ready for you. But in the first century, getting food to the table was a long and laborious process took a lot of time and patience. And James gives us a picture of what godly patience looks like. And what it doesn't look like is passivity. A farmer doesn't go out into the field and stand there and do nothing. He doesn't look up at the sky and say, "Okay God, do something. I'm waiting. Bring up the crops." He doesn't do that. That's not how it works. Farmers are not passive. They're, they're anything but passive. Farmers are hard workers. They, 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 they get the seed, and they till the earth, and they plant the seeds, and they cover the seeds, and there's all these things that they are doing to, to, to prepare for the harvest. It's hard work. It's not passive. So God calls us to an active waiting, not a passive waiting. Believers press forward in obedience to Christ, doing the things that He has called us to do. We aren't passive. But on the other hand, going back to the farmer, after he has done all that he can do, then what can he do? All he can do is wait, right? Uh, Wait with hopeful expectation. And his wait totally depends on God's work. Uh, He's totally waiting for God to bring the, the early rains and the late rains, uh, that, that in Israel there were two significant seasons of rain, uh, the, the early rains in the fall, the late rains in the spring, and the farmer, he's there, he's waiting, literally waiting for months dependent on God. Maybe he's a poor farmer too, and so his, his, his store of food is, as the months are passing is being depleted, and he's getting closer and closer to the end of that supply of food, and he is waiting and waiting, but he can't force this. He can't run up and and dig up the seeds and speed up the process. That would ruin the process. He's got to wait and be patient and trust that God will bring forth the produce from the earth in God's way and in God's good timetable. And the point is that after a season of waiting that seems long and hard, a reward comes. Patience pays off. Blessing comes. So for the farmer, the end of the waiting brings the blessing of a bounty of good produce from the earth. And for the suffering believer, the waiting in the suffering, likewise, is not vain. The waiting is not wasted. Some of you are going through a time of hard waiting right now. You're suffering through a trial that never seems to end. And maybe sometimes you wonder, is this even worth it? Is anything good really going to come on the other side of all of this? And James is telling you, be patient. Good is coming. Don't be surprised by the hardship. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God, the Bible tells us. That's one thing that is guaranteed. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom. But the other thing guaranteed is that on the other side of the tribulation is the fullness of Christ's presence and reward. And banking on that hope gives us the the, the strength and the fortitude to press forward and not give up. It helps us with patience. That's exactly what uh, what Paul is talking about. When he writes to the Galatian church, when he encourages them to, to, to not grow weary of doing good, he says, For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. On the other side of the waiting is a glorious reward that makes the hardship of waiting worth it. And so that's why in verse 8, James says, Like the farmer, you also be patient. And then he says, Establish your hearts, establish your hearts. That word establish, that's the same Greek word in Luke 9 that describes Jesus' firm resolve to go to Jerusalem no matter what happens there. Now, the word conveys a firm commitment. Uh, The root of the word is prop, as in prop yourself up. And James is saying that through your suffering and persecution and affliction, prop yourself up with the hope of the parousia. He says the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, of course, we know that 2,000 years after James wrote this, Jesus still hasn't returned. And yet James, interestingly enough, And the other New Testament writers always wrote with a sense of urgency that it could happen at any time, and that believers should live in light of the reality that Jesus could come back this very hour, even before our church service is done. Oh, how glorious that would be. Y'all wouldn't have to sit through this anymore. It'd be so much better. And a lot of other benefits as well. The reason why the New Testament can speak of the nearness and the imminence of Christ's coming is because in the grand scale of redemptive history, many things have already taken place, including the pinnacle of history, which is the cross of Christ, which opens the door of salvation to the whole world. All of the moments of redemptive history before the cross were pointing to and anticipating the cross, building to that climactic moment. And now... That that has finally happened, there is only one thing remaining on God's redemptive calendar, and that's the return of Jesus. And remember the scriptures say that to God, a thousand years is as one day to him. It's nothing to him, right? Uh, it's a blink of an eye. Uh, for us, 2,000 years seems like forever for him. It's a couple days. <laughs> a couple days. And if the return of Christ was regarded as imminent for the New Testament writers, and a couple of days have passed since then, how much more imminent is it for you and for me? Therefore, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So, James gives us the the reason for patience, the coming of Christ, an illustration of patience, the farmer. He also gives us a demonstration of patience, which has to do with the tongue the tongue. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. James once again returns to this issue of speech, of the use of your tongues. He keeps coming back to this in, in this book. Why? Because words that come out of our mouths are a reflection of what is in our hearts. You see, as we undergo hardship, as we're waiting for relief, and it seems that there's no end in sight to our affliction, we are often tempted to lash out in frustration to those who are closest to us. I've done this. I may be going through something difficult, and, and my anger and my bitterness over the situation is manifested in harsh words towards, towards my wife and towards my kids. And, and they had nothing to do with the situation. They're like, what is your problem? Well, why are you coming at me like that? and yet they bear the brunt of my frustration. Uh, James, James knows that these believers are enduring such intense difficulty, they're going to be tempted to lash out at one another and say harsh words against one another. They can't attack the wealthy landowners who are giving them a hard time, who are abusing them. But in their impatience, they feel like they've got to attack something. And so what do they do? They thrust verbal daggers into other members of the church. That's a satanic strategy, by the way. That's a strategy of the devil. We at Harbin's need to be on the lookout for that. Be very careful not to descend into grumbling against one another. It's interesting that James in this verse calls them brothers. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. He's reminding them of something. He's reminding them of their true identity. You aren't enemies. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. You're part of the same team. You have the same Lord. The one you're attacking right now is family and a fellow heir of the kingdom. What are you doing? It's a grievous sin. It happens in churches all the time. But we don't realize how serious and how destructive it is. That word grumble would have struck a deep chord with James's Jewish audience. Upon hearing that word, they would have been reminded of their Israelite forefathers whom God delivered from slavery in Egypt, and and He was bringing them through the wilderness to the land of promise. It was a good land. It was a bountiful land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a foreshadow of our heavenly inheritance. But in the time between deliverance from bondage and the promised land, they're in the wilderness, and there is waiting. Uh, There's hardship. And things aren't happening according to their expectations. And, And the people face hardships that they thought they shouldn't have to face and they struggle to be patient with God to provide for them. And the Old Testament narrative regularly describes Israel's struggle as grumbling. They grumble against Moses, and they grumble against Aaron. And Moses ends up saying to them, "Uh, who are we that you're grumbling against us? You're really not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against God. You see, the root of their problem was that they did not trust the promises of God. They did not trust that He had a good end for them. They did not have a robust eschatology. They did not believe that on the other side of their trials was glorious blessings and a good inheritance, and they did not want to wait for God to bless them in His way and in His time, and because of their refusal to wait, they missed the blessing. Most of them never ended up going into the promised land. When we grumble... When we lash out with words, sometimes we excuse it because we're going through hard times. We'll say, well, I'm just, I'm just under a lot of pressure. Is, cut me some slack. I'm having a hard time. Get off my back. Bible never gives that as an excuse. Bible never cuts us slack here. Quite the opposite. The Bible instead promises that we will be held accountable for our grumbling. That's what James means at the end of verse 9 when he says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, we go back to how practical eschatology is. James, again, points to the imminent return of Christ. In those days, there was a, there, in the cities, uh, there would be a judgment hall that had big double doors. And the judge would come through those doors, and the court session began. And here, James pictures Christ about to push those doors open to walk into the judgment hall and begin the judgment. James says that the judge is right outside. (laughs) What are you doing? This is important because the parousia not only brings wrath to the enemies of Christ, but it brings sober examination and accountability to believers. Now, make no mistake, we're saved by grace, not by works, but our works will still be examined by the judge. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The believer doesn't need to fear hell, but he should fear accountability and the loss of reward due to how we live our lives now. And as Jesus says elsewhere, we will be held accountable even for the idle words that we speak. And so, then what's the point? The point is, let us live in light of that. Uh, d- d- does, your, does your understanding and your awareness of the imminent return of Christ, does that impact how you live every day? I bet you with many Christians it doesn't. They, don't, they, don't, they go the whole day without thinking of the return of Christ. I know I can. I'm so thankful for this word here from James because it's reminding me that my mind has not been on things that it needs to be on. And there are ways that I can grow things I need to concentrate more on. So let us live in light of that. Let us live in such a way that when he comes through that door, he would not find you and me doing anything that we would be embarrassed about, ashamed of, including grumbling and complaining. Ultimately, we're grumbling about him, the judge, and yet he's standing right at the door. So we're given the reason for patience, the Lord's coming. We're given an illustration of patience, the farmer, a demonstration of patience, which is the tongue. Next, he gives us an example of patience, the prophets, verse 10. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, sometimes when we are going through an intense trial, we act like it's something strange and abnormal. And we may even think, well, maybe I'm being punished. Maybe this means that I'm not living for God. Maybe if I were more obedient, things would be easier. Or if God really intended to bring blessing, this hard thing wouldn't be happening. But in mentioning the prophets, James blows away those theories. James is forcing us to look back and to remember that the faith once delivered to the saints did not start with you, you're part of a larger story. A bigger picture. There are many who have gone before you, many saints, many people who have loved and pursued God. And when you look at the greatest, the greatest men and women of God in the Bible, the greatest people of God in the Bible, what do we see? You see incredible ministry, incredible impact, incredible acts of faith, and incredible hardship and suffering. In particular, think about the prophets, these great men of God of old. We look back to these men, and we discover that patiently enduring affliction is part of the normal Christian experience. So, we should not be surprised when God calls you and me to the exact same thing. When when you consider Joseph and David and Moses and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Amos and Isaiah, the list goes on and on. The greatest spiritual giants, those we love and desire most to emulate, those who had the deepest and most intimate relationship with God, they all went through trials of various kinds. And it was in the trials, in the waiting, where they learned steadfast patience. In, it was in the furnace of affliction. In the furnace of affliction, their character was shaped. That's how these men we admire so much became men that we admire so much. It didn't happen in a vacuum. And so, James says in verse 10, Behold, we consider those blessed or happy who remained steadfast. He's talking about these suffering people. They are blessed. That's a revolutionary thought. They're happy. Happy are those who remain steadfast. So, there it is again. Blessing comes through patient, faithful, steadfast endurance through trial, These are the kind of people that experience an abundance of God's blessing. That's exactly what we learn in Matthew chapter 20 when the mother of James and John dare to ask Jesus if her sons can sit on Jesus' right and left hand in the coming kingdom. That is a bold request. Can my son sit on your right and your left hand after the parousia when the kingdom is established? Can they be number one and number two in your cosmic empire to come? Hey, she's looking out for her boys, I guess. That's what moms do. I want my sons to be sitting right there in the greatest seats of honor. And Jesus says, well, that's, that's up to my father. But then he turns to James and John, and he asks them, are you able to drink from the cup I'm about to drink from? And James and John blurt out, absolutely. No problem. Folks, they have no idea what they're talking about. Jesus is talking about suffering Jesus is about to go through the most intense suffering and affliction ever. That's the cup that he's about to drink from. And he's asking them, Can you follow me and that kind of suffering? Well, what's the implication? The implication is that the greater the reward in heaven, the greater the suffering must precede it. The greater the suffering, the greater the reward. Or as I've heard someone say, the greater the brokenness, the greater the blessing. That was true of them. It's true for you. So James says, as you go through your trials and afflictions, find encouragement in those prophets of old who were blessed, so blessed. But then he turns our attention to one whom we would consider to be outside of Christ, maybe the pinnacle of affliction and suffering, and it's Job. I love Job. I love that book. Every sermon series that I preach has a special place in my heart, but if I had to pick a favorite, it would have been the series that I preached in 2015 through Job. That was amazing. We'll revisit Job at a later date. But he says, verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And in the story of Job, Satan is assaulting him with all kinds of afflictions, Job loses his health, his wealth, his children, and Satan believes that if those bad things happen to Job, that Job will curse God and and not follow him anymore. And in the beginning of the trial, Job responds to his suffering in an exemplary way. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sung that at the top of the service. And you kind of want the book to end on that triumphant note, with Job then getting some immediate relief and reward. But that doesn't happen. The book goes on. I was just talking with someone this week about the book of Job, how it goes on and on and on and on. Job is 42 chapters. (laughs) Nearly the whole thing covers his intense agony. It's a pretty bleak book. It's a hard book to read. By the time By the time you get to chapter 7, you you, you just want to say, okay, Job's suffering. I get the point. Can Can we end the book now? And it doesn't end. It keeps going, and it feels like it'll never end. And you get impatient, and the book keeps going. And I think that's part of the point. Job is waiting, and we're waiting with him. You get to chapter 19, and Job is in the middle of another of his dark and depressing speeches. But then, all of a sudden, in the midst of it all, when you think that he might finally give up, he says something amazing. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job hangs on. He struggles. He has doubts. He has questions. But he keeps coming back to God. That's what's happening there in Job 19. He keeps coming back. And he refuses to throw in the towel and throw God under the bus ultimately. And he banks all of his hopes on his Redeemer. Not just in his life but after his death. That's what he means when he says, after my skin has thus been destroyed. He's looking ahead. Again, we're circling back to eschatology. It's everywhere because it matters. Job's stubborn tenacity may be best seen in his most famous declaration, though he slay me, I will hope in him that, my friend, is steadfastness in the midst of trials. As your pastor, I'm, I'm actually praying that you can say that with courage and confidence in the trial that you're going through. That's, that's what I want. Don't get me wrong. I love you, and I, I want your trial to end. But even more than that, I want you to value and hope in God that much, that much. And sometimes it takes a trial for us to get there. Even if God kills me in my affliction, I'll keep on hoping. That's the kind of dogged, gritty faith, that tenacious waiting on God that James is calling us to. It's a waiting that brings blessing because God always has a good purpose when he calls his people to wait in the midst of affliction. And that, that's my final point, is that James finally gives us, he gives us a hope that strengthens patience, the purpose, the purpose. Verse 11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That word purpose in the Greek is telos, T-E-L-O-S. It means outcome or goal. Our afflictions are not random. They're not just the roll of the dice. It's not just chance. They're not without purpose. And this alone should bring great encouragement and facilitate patience while we wait on God. There is a purpose that for all of this that's being worked out right now. In the situation with Job, God wasn't toying with Job. And Job wasn't just a, a pawn in a chess game between the Lord and Satan. While the devil had a purpose for Job in the suffering to curse and destroy him, God had a purpose for Job to bless and build him up. And guess what? It was that purpose that won out in the end. It's exactly what happens. By the time you reach to the end of the, of the book, Job admits that he has learned of the sovereignty and goodness of God. His faith and his character are stronger than ever before. He's more humble than ever before. He's seen the glory and majesty of God in a way that he never would have. And most remarkably, he has come to appreciate the worth and value of God so much that he knows that losing it all and having God is way better than having it all and losing God. That's what God wants you to learn. That's what he wants me to learn. He, he doesn't just, and Job now doesn't just know it in his head, like I'm sure at the beginning of Job, like he could have just spatted that out with all the other doctrines that he knew. But by the end of the book, he knows it in his heart, and therefore his joy and his satisfaction in God are deeper than ever before, and it's totally worth it all. And on top of that, in the end, Job actually receives more than what he lost. Everything about Job is better in the end than it is in the beginning, and for James's audience, who would have been very familiar with this book, the conclusion of Job's story anticipates God's in time eschatological restoration of all things. It pictures how, on the other side of the long waiting, at the end of a hard road of endurance, it pictures how there is maximum blessing from a God who is totally compassionate and merciful and knows how to bless us way better than we do. And so the waiting is not only not wasted, but the waiting is the vehicle that ultimately brings maximum blessing to the people of God, yielding a peaceful fruit of righteousness now and giving way to an even greater experience and enjoyment of God in the age to come. The story of Job is a picture of that. And this is exactly the road that our Lord Jesus Christ walked. In his first coming, 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked in the wilderness. He experienced the time of waiting and trial. I mean, honestly, his whole life was a trial. But in the desert place, in Matthew chapter 4, the devil comes to him, takes him to a high place, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and all their splendor. And Satan says, I'll give you all these kingdoms. I'll give them all to you right now. All you have to do to get them is bend the knee to me. That's it. That's it. And you wonder, well, how is that a temptation? (laughs) Like, like, Jesus is really going to do that. Jesus is already the king. And the kingdoms of the world are already his by rights. So what's the point of the temptation? The point is that if he waits to receive the fullness of his kingdom inheritance in the Father's timing and in the Father's way, the path to that inheritance leads through the cross through the horror of having the sins of the world put on His back, and the Father's wrath poured out on Him for our sake. And so at the heart of the satanic temptation is to reject the waiting, to get it all now. Don't wait, Jesus. Why, why go through this suffering? You deserve this. They don't. The very nature of the temptation of Christ is the way that Satan tempts us now. (laughs) He tells us if God loves us, we shouldn't have to wait. If God really loved us, we should get it all now. We're tempted to think that the way of rebellion is better than the way of faithful steadfastness through pain and suffering and waiting. And it's a powerful temptation. And yet Jesus saw through the lies of Satan And he turned away from immediate gratification to instead embrace the wisdom of God's plan, a plan that included much pain, much sorrow, much waiting, much heartache, which would give way to infinite joy and maximum glory and salvation for you and for everyone who would trust in him. For the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross for that great eschatological redemptive hope in the promise of the Father, He did that. And He embraced, as He embraced the Father's plan, once again, the wisdom of God was proven to be superior to any plan that we could come up with. And yet, we still struggle, don't we? We still struggle, even after that example, we still struggle with trusting the Father in our affliction, in our waiting, in His dealings with us. We still feel like our way is better, our plan is better. If God really loved us, He'd do what I wanted Him to do in this situation, and He would not make me wait. And yet, we parents, we know there's something off about that. Is that how we treat our children? What would happen if we gave our children everything that they wanted, in the way that they wanted, as many times as they wanted, never making them wait, always guarding them from things unpleasant, always giving them things that seem right in their eyes, what would happen if we responded to their every demand? Would that make our children more contented and happier and satisfied and give them stronger character? Come on, y'all. You know, you know the answer to this, especially moms and dads. No. It would produce the opposite effect. It would make them less happy and less content and less satisfied and even more demanding and more self-focused and ultimately more miserable. And we've seen children like that in the grocery store. And some of us are like, no, I've seen it in my house. I feel you. And so, because we love our kids. We don't give them everything they want, when they want it, how they want it, in the timing that they prefer. Sometimes we say no to them, and sometimes we permit them to go through situations that are very unpleasant for them, and sometimes we make them wait. Why? Because we're mean? No. Because we love them. Because we know what's best. And because we are wiser than them. And even if our children kick and scream and raise their fist and get angry and think it's unfair and think we don't love them, we stick to our wise plan because actually we do know better. Because we know what the outcome will be if we go this way as opposed to this way. And we love them and we want for them what is best. That's exactly how the Father treats you and me. And he calls us to trust in him. He calls us to consider the farmer, consider the prophet, consider Job. And ultimately, the author of Hebrews tells us, look to Christ the founder and perfecter of our faith. We are to follow Him, Christ, who blazed the trail for us, who traveled the road marked with suffering for us, who made it safely through to the other side because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy and His resurrection from the grave and His ascension to glory is the proof that all who follow Him likewise will make it safely through their suffering to the other side. That great suffering now leads to great glory later, and therefore our waiting is not wasted. Let's pray.